Chapter Eleven of Sir Titus Salt, Baronet, His Life and Its Lessons. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Wayne Cook. Sir Titus Salt, Baronet, His Life and Its Lessons, by Robert Belgarni. Chapter Eleven. His faith and works, like streams that intermingle, in the same channel ran. The crystal clearness of an eye kept single, shamed all the frauds of man. Anonymous. He's that liberal to all alike, may do a good by chance, but never out of judgment. Beaumont and Fletcher. When Mr. Salt was mayor of Bradford in 1848, he gave abundant proof of his solicitude for the religious wants of the population, and for which no adequate provision had been made. In the flush of commercial prosperity, it is to be feared that many who shared in it failed to realize the moral obligations that wealth entails, especially in providing places of worship for the working classes. Happily, at a later period, the hearts of Christian men were quickened in this direction, and the various religious communions put forth great efforts to supply the deficiency, so that now Bradford is a town second to none in the number and excellence of its churches and Sunday schools. To the erection of many of these, Mr. Salt had been a generous contributor. But now that the weighty responsibility of bringing some thousands of workpeople to reside at Salt Air devolved upon him, there was good reason to expect that their spiritual necessities would enlist his sympathy, even as their physical wants had done. Nor was this expectation disappointed. In arranging the plan of the town from the first, a superior site had been selected for a church, but previous to its erection a temporary one had been provided. In the year 1858 the church was commenced, and was opened the following year. It is situated between the railway and the canal, and in front of the offices connected with the works. The approach to it, from the main road, is by a long asphalted avenue, bordered on either side with grass and shrubs neatly kept. The architectural style of the edifice is, of course, Italian, but carried out with a richness of detail that makes it surpass all other buildings in the neighborhood. It seems Mr. Salt had purposely designed that God's house should have the very best of everything it was in his power to give, and, surrounded as it is by his vast manufacturing establishment, it stands like a palace built for God. The porch consists of a series of Corinthian columns raised above the ground by six circular steps. These columns support eight smaller ones which terminate in a dome, beneath which is the chamber where the clock, with its chime of six bells, is placed, the musical notes of which sound sweetly over the neighborhood. On the south side is the family mausoleum, which is entered from the interior of the church. Let us enter within the latter and see its harmony and simple elegance. It is in the form of a parallelogram, ninety-five feet by forty-five feet. A continuous base runs round the building, supporting at intervals massive Corinthian columns, curiously formed, and which seem to the eye like polished malachite. 
the spaces between the columns are occupied by windows filled with delicately tinted glass a broad aisle runs up the centre of the church and the seats are of solid oak polished and carved a massive balustrade encloses the communion table in the pulpit which with the organ occupies a domed recess two large circular chandeliers hang from the ceiling formed of ormolu with discs of cut and ground glass the family pew is placed in a gallery over the entrance facing the communion table but it has never been occupied by them mr salt when worshipping there preferring to be seated among the people the whole cost of the edifice was about sixteen thousand pounds it is well known that mr salt was both from education and conviction a nonconformist to the congregational or independent form he has been accustomed from childhood in this communion divine worship is as a rule simple the doctrines are not formulated into a creed but the holy scriptures are regarded as the only supreme standard the form of church government is avowedly based on the model of the apostolic churches which they believe were congregational that is the members of the congregation managed their own affairs independent that is there was no governing body outside the congregation the choice of the ministry of congregational churches as well as its support is therefore left in the hands of christian worshippers and the patronage either of individuals or of the state is entirely inadmissible it was in harmony with these principles that the church at saltaire was begun the selection of the first pastor was handed over to the congregation the voluntary contributions of the people towards his stipend were encouraged and the whole material fabric conveyed to trustees that it might be held as a congregational church in perpetuity but though warmly attached to congregationalism he was no narrow-minded sectarian the liberty he claimed in the exercise of his own religious convictions he fully accorded to others none of his employees were compelled to attend the church he had built on the contrary he afforded every facility to other denominations to erect places of worship on his estate to the wesleyans he granted a site comprising thirteen hundred square yards and laid the foundation stone of their chapel he was also present at one of the opening services the primitive methodists were presented with the site on which their chapel stands the baptists have two chapels on the confines of the town the episcopalians having a church so near at shipley in which parish saltaire is situated the erection of another was not deemed necessary the roman catholics have also a church in the immediate neighborhood the swedenborgans have a room for their meetings thus the religious wants of the people are met and the spirit of christian liberality and charity exhibited by mr salt is a worthy example for others to follow in a large establishment like saltaire the workpeople are necessarily exposed to various accidents from machinery. To meet such cases, an infirmary is erected, with every convenience for surgical operations and medical treatment. If a person is maimed for life, he receives a pension, or such light employment is provided for him as he may be able to follow. The baths and wash-houses afford further evidence of Mr. Salt's interest in the health and comfort of his workpeople. They are situated in Amelia Street, and were built at a cost of seven thousand pounds. 
there are twenty-four baths twelve on either side of the building for men and women respectively each having a separate entrance a turkish bath is also provided the wash-houses are the result of mr salt's perception of the need of them for the comfort of the workpeople in passing along the streets of salt air his eye was sometimes offended by the lines of clothes which on washing days were hung out of doors in visiting the dwellings he had ocular proof of the inconvenience connected with the domestic laundry he therefore resolved to elect public wash-houses for the people and to furnish them with all the newest appliances these consist of three steam-engines and six washing-machines each person bringing clothes to be washed is provided with a rubbing and boiling tub into which steam hot and cold water are conveyed by pipes when the washing process is finished the clothes are put into a wringing machine contrived on centrifugal principle by which a strong current of air is driven through them and the moisture expelled they are next put in frames which run on wheels into the drying closet heated with hot air after which they are ready for the mangling and folding rooms so that clothes carried to the wash-houses in a soiled condition can be in the course of an hour wash dried mangled and folded the alms-houses are another proof of his thoughtful provision for the aged and infirm and were erected in a grateful remembrance of god's undeserved goodness and in the hope of promoting the comfort of some who in feebleness and necessity may need a home they are situated in the upper part of victoria road on one side of which twenty of them are placed and on the other side twenty-five making forty-five in all capable of receiving seventy-five occupants in passing along victoria road these almshouses attract the notice of every visitor and have the appearance of italian villas with walks and flower-gardens in front and creeping plants by the windows internally they are provided with everything requisite to the comfort of the inmates such as ovens boilers pantries water and gas all free the inmates may be either men or women single married or widowed each married almsman residing with his wife receives a weekly allowance of ten shillings and each single almsman or woman seven shillings and sixpence which allowance is paid weekly the qualifications for admission are good moral character and incapacity for labor by reason of age disease or infirmity although preference is given to persons who have been in the service of the firm it is not restricted to such but others who stand in need and are personally known to the trustees are also eligible there is no distinction of religious creed in considering applications but all are placed on an equal footing and when accepted are free to attend the place of worship they prefer but as many of them are aged and infirm and thereby unable to go far from their homes a neat little chapel has been provided for their special benefit on the day it was opened mr salt who was present said that his sole desire was that they should be all happy and he hoped they were so and that nothing would give him greater pleasure than to know that this was the case the chapel is well lighted and ventilated its walls are adorned with appropriate texts of scripture and services are held in it every sunday morning and wednesday night one event of the year is the annual tea given to the inmates 
at which Mr. Salt and his family had been accustomed to attend. It was a sight worthy of the artist's pencil when, on such an occasion, their benefactor appeared in their midst. At one of these celebrations they presented him with a pair of gold spectacles and a silver-mounted walking-stick as an expression of their warmest gratitude. Truly to him might be applied the language of the scriptures, when the ear heard him, then it blessed him, and when the eye saw him, it gave witness to him, because he delivered the poor that cried, and the fatherless, and him that had none to help him. The blessing of him that was ready to perish came upon him, and he caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. But as some of the institutions above described were erected some time after Saltaire was opened, let us go back in thought to 1853 and see the machinery of the works ready for starting. How different the aspect which meets the eye from that which was visible on that 20th September, when Mr. Salt gathered his numerous friends around him to keep high festival. Everything now has the appearance of business. The combing shed, where the sumptuous banquet had been spread, is now filled with machinery of the most recent invention. The weaving shed is covered with its acres of looms, where many hands stand ready for work. The warehouses are stored with wools, soon to pass through the necessary processes prior to becoming fabric. At last, the great steam engines begin to move, sending their motive power into every part of the vast system, which, as if touched by a mysterious hand, wakes up into life. The complicated wheels begin to revolve, the ponderous frames to quiver, the spindles to whirl, and the shuttles to glide. Now the silence of the place is broken by the din of machinery, in which the human voice is quite inaudible, and then comes forth the product of it all, the beautiful texture known as alpaca. How animated the scene! But it is not one soon to vanish away, like the inaugural festivity, but to continue long after the cunning hand of its originator has crumbled into dust. Here, then, we behold this enterprising manufacturer at the age of fifty commencing a new career. But the accumulated experience of the past thirty years was now of immense advantage to him. It seemed as if he had been all along preparing himself for the wider field of enterprise in which still greater wealth and fame were to be reaped. His faculty for organization was exhibited on a scale untried before, but such was his knowledge of men that out of the thousands of workpeople he was able to select those who were competent to fill the various posts of duty. May we not say that whatever administrative abilities are considered necessary to the governor of a colony were equally necessary to the governor of this colony of industrious workers? And it was not with despotic power he governed them, for although dependent upon him for the means of support, they had unlimited confidence in the uprightness of his character and the kindness of his heart. On entering his works one day, he discovered some of the yarn had been spoiled in the spinning process. He immediately inquired who had done the mischief. A workman stepped forward and said, It is of no use, sir, accusing anybody else. I am the man who did it. 
Of course, they expected nothing but summary dismissal for his negligence, and anxiously awaited the verdict. Uh, what do you mean to do? asked Mr. Salt. Do better, sir, was the reply. Then, said his master with a smile, go and do it. This workman is still living, and his opinion of his master is given in the following words. When his mind was made up, nothing could move him. He never flinched from hard work, never talked about a thing, but did it, never used an unnecessary word. He was a kind master to me. The opening of the works of Salt Air soon became known throughout the country, and awakened much interest among the various ranks and classes. The press had not only given an account of the inaugural banquet, but of the gigantic establishment with all its interior arrangements and outward surroundings. The consequence was that not only men of business, but of science and philanthropy, came from all parts of the kingdom to Salt Air, and expressed themselves both astonished and delighted with what they witnessed. At first, every facility was afforded to strangers in gratifying their curiosity or satisfying their inquiries. But in course of time it became necessary to adopt certain regulations in the mode of admission. Besides the interruption to work, the expert eye of the visitor easily gathered a harvest of new ideas while inspecting various costly inventions. It was afterwards found that these ideas were not only purloined, but reproduced to the injury of the patentee, as well as the proprietor. This led to the adoption of the rule at present in force, which restricts admission to those who are personally known to the firm, one of whom generally accompanies the visitor over the works. Shortly after Saltaire was opened, several carriages filled with gentlemen drove up to the gates under the leadership of the late Dr. MacLeod of Ben Writing. Mr. Salt received them with much cordiality, for among them were two well-known names around which much interest gathered. These were Mr. William Fairbairn, the late Sir William, and Mr. Dargan, the well-known Irish contractor. After an inspection of the establishment, Mr. Salt invited the whole party to dinner, and Mr. Lockwood, who was also present, was commissioned to proceed to Bradford to make the necessary arrangements. That dinner party is well remembered by at least one of the guests, for the sparkling sallies of wit that were made on the occasion, and of which the Irishmen present were the chief contributors, and also for a memorable incident that took place at the close. Mr. Fairbairn, Mr. Dargan, and Mr. Lockwood remained for an hour after the other guests had left. Turning to the host, Mr. Dargan said, Now, Mr. Salt, I want to know your history. But there was no answer. Come, he said, I must have it. My history, said Mr. Salt very modestly, has nothing particular about it, and in a few words he mentioned those salient facts with which the reader is already familiar. Now, said he, I should like to know the history of you three gentlemen. Mr. Dargan's life was certainly a very eventful one, and worthy of a brief record here, he said. My father was a farmer in Ireland, and my mother an exceedingly clever woman who brought up her children in a most judicious manner. But suddenly she died, and my father became an altered man for the worse. Everything on the farm went to wreck and ruin, and two years after my mother's death he died also. The little property that fell to my share, 
I gave up to my sisters, and I made up my mind to seek my fortune elsewhere. I went to Dublin and crossed to Hollyhead, where workmen were blasting the rocks for the breakwater. I went into the quarries and worked for twelve shillings a week. Thinking I could myself work better than they, I sought and obtained other employment at two pounds a week. After a while I thought I could yet better myself, and gave notice to leave. But the contractor offered me a situation with a salary of two hundred pounds a year. I accepted it and got married. Then came the railway mania, when every man who had a knowledge of land surveying was sure to find employment. I went back to Ireland and learned what I wanted. My newly acquired knowledge was soon called into requisition. I undertook to survey part of a line of railway, and in the first year I made two thousand pounds. Afterwards I took a contract for some of the works, one of which was a bridge. It was there, he said, turning to Mr. Fairbairn. Fairbairn, you and I first met. Since then I have made millions, but have not kept them. Such is the story of Dargan's life, as given by himself on the occasion referred to. As a supplement to it, it may be interesting to know that he planned the Industrial Exhibition of Dublin in 1853 with a view of developing the resources of his native country, and as a help towards its realization, he placed £20,000 in the hands of a working committee, which some was lost, for, in a monetary point of view, the exhibition was a failure. At the opening ceremony, the offer of knighthood was offered to him, which he declined. Mr. Salt then called on Mr. Fairbairn to relate his history, which has been recently published at length in Pole's Life of Sir William Fairbairn. It affords a striking illustration, along with those of Mr. Salt and Mr. Dargan, of what men with moderate education and limited means may accomplish. They were all self-made men, who entered upon the business of life with a determination to succeed. Into every undertaking they put their undivided energies, and each success became a stepping-stone to still higher attainment. Mr. Lockwood's life was also given on this occasion, but as it is happily not completed, it would be out of place to record it in part. Suffice it to say that he, too, is an example to young men how the cultivation of talent, devotedness to professional duties, combined with tact and courtesy, can lead to eminence. One of the most remarkable machines in the works of salt air is that used in the combing of wools, and which is worthy of notice not only from its own intrinsic value, but from other circumstances to which we shall briefly refer. The inventor of this machine was Heilman, a Frenchman, who took out a patent for it in England about the year 1849. The principle of his invention is what is called the nip, which means the mode of taking firm hold of the ends of the wool and holding them as firmly as the hair of the head is fixed in the scalp. For the perfecting of this machine, the trade is mainly indebted to Mr. Samuel Cunliffe Lister of Bradford, whose name is perpetuated both by the park at Manningham and the statue erected there. From the interesting history of the firm of James Ackroyd and Son Limited, we give the following extract. An essential part of Mr. Lister's completed machine is what is called Heilman's Patent. This patent was purchased conjointly by the firm of James Ackroyd and Son and Titus, now Sir Titus, Salt, Sons and Company. About the year of 1852, and resold to Mr. Lister for about £40,000, 
the amount of the original purchase money reserving the right of use to the vendors it will thus be seen that in the works of saltaire no expense was spared to make the machinery perfect a principle on which the firm has continued to act and which enables them to maintain that high position in the trade to which they are so justly entitled from the reputation of mr salt in connection with alpaca it might be supposed that this was the only staple manufacturer at saltaire but it is not so his success in the utilizing of donskoy wool and alpaca led him to try other experiments of a similar kind his eye was ever quick to perceive the demands of the trade and his patience and perseverance enabled him to continue his experiments with any new material submitted until its properties and capabilities were ascertained the material to which reference will now be made is mohair the wool or hair of the angora goat unlike the alpaca this animal is indigenous to the eastern world as the former is to the western its home is in the mountainous interior of asia minor in the centre of which is angora a town situate about two hundred twenty miles east of constantinople angora has long been celebrated for its breed of goats with beautiful silky hair eight inches in length of this goat hair commonly called mohair a yarn is made from which is manufactured the beautiful fabric called urecht velvet which is used most extensively for upholstering purposes curtains and so forth and with which many of the continental railway carriages are lined of the skin of the angora goat the fine oriental leather is made but the wool or hair of this animal is not like that of the alpaca a new material in the production of textile fabrics it is perhaps one of the most ancient in the world there is reason to believe that it is to this material reference is made in exodus twenty five fourth verse speaking of the covering of the jewish tabernacle in the wilderness god says and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hair it is perhaps also to the beautiful and silky appearance of this material that solomon refers in songs for one thy hair is as a flock of goats that appear from mount gilead it would thus appear from the above quotations that the goat's hair in ancient times was utilized and was particularly soft and beautiful but whatever the origin or antiquity of mohair it became shortly after salt air was opened one of the staple articles in use and along with alpaca is manufactured into an endless variety of the worsted goods which are to be found on every draper's counter in the kingdom and worn in various forms by the inhabitants of countries beyond the seas in order that regular supplies of mohair may be obtained for manufacturing purposes an agent of the salt hair firm permanently resides in constantinople through whom all business negotiations are conducted the name of titus salt is well known in various parts of turkey and has long been synonymous with all that is honourable in connection with british commerce as an evidence of this the youngest son of mr salt happened to be visiting constantinople in the year eighteen sixty five this visit was not for purposes of business but simply as a tourist in eastern parts but one day he presented a draft at a banking-house bearing the honoured name of his father which was also his own it was soon noised abroad that titus salt from england had arrived in the capital 
and on change it was conjectured that commercial pursuits must have brought him. The consequence was that prices took a sudden rise and extensive purchases were anticipated. These hopes, however, were raised only to be dashed to the ground, for the English tourist soon took his departure without making any particular investment except in articles of curiosity. The business negotiations with East were sometimes conducted with the quiet dispatch peculiar to diplomacy. We once happened to meet the firm at luncheon when a telegram arrived, which was handed to Sir Titus and passed to the other partners. It was, last of all, handed to us. But, lo, it was written in cipher, which no one knew save the sender and they to whom it was sent. Thus, between Saltaire and Constantinople, business was being transacted at this moment, and, for aught we know, wealth was thereby acquired. End of chapter 11